On this edition of The Golf Guy, we talked to Jeff Kitty, who is the head pro at Aronimink, which is uh, a wonderful club uh, just outside Philadelphia, one of the uh, top courses along with Marion in the Philadelphia area. Um, Jeff has been the head pro there for um, about 14 years, since 2008. As you'll hear, I mean, he really has wears a lot of hats. Uh, besides being the head pro at Aronim Inc., um, he is uh, uh, president of the Philadelphia PGA. He's been heavily involved in the section for a long time and was elected president in 2019. He's worked as a rules official in various tournaments over the years. Um, he's on the, I think, the PGA Rules Committee nationally. Um, he's been named uh, National Merchandiser of the Year, I think back in 2011. He has uh, really had quite a distinguished career um, uh, as, a, um, as a head club professional. Uh, and interestingly, uh, we didn't get into the next point, but um, there's kind of a, in the small world category, a little bit of a tie between Brentwood Country Club here in Los Angeles, where I play at, and Aronimink because interestingly the PGA for um, 1962 was originally scheduled for Brentwood um, but at that time um, the PGA of America had a Caucasian only clause and um, uh, they had voted in November 1960 to retain it. Um, Stanley Mosk who back then was California Attorney General, threatened to shut down the PGA until they removed the clause. So in response, the PGA moved it from Los Angeles to Aronimink in Philadelphia. Um, they ended up dropping the clause in November 1961, but they had already moved the 62 tournament, um, decided to move it before then to Aronimink. So um, the 1962 PGA was actually held in Aronimink, um, and since then, uh, Aronimink has held a number of other significant tournaments, and the PGA is coming back in 2026. We talk a little bit about that. Uh, but Aronimink's a wonderful course. It's a Donald Ross gem, um, and we, we talk about that. Gil Hans restored it a few years ago, and um, Jeff is actually pretty good friends with Gil. So um, interesting conversation. Uh, hope you enjoyed upcoming Jeff Kitty from Aronimink uh, on The Golf Guy. Well, welcome to another edition of The Golf Guy. And it is my great pleasure and honor today to uh, have with us uh, Jeff Kitty from Aronimink um, outside Philadelphia. Uh, uh, Philadelphia, of course, is such a rich golf community with so many wonderful courses. And Aronimink, you know, a, a real Donald Ross gem is, is right at the top of the list with Marion and a few of the other ones. So. Um, Jeff, thank you very much for making time for us today. Appreciate it. Yeah, my pleasure. Um, You're so, so let's maybe get started just kind of how you got started. So you grew up, um, I think, in Victor, New York, um, in the Rochester, greater Rochester area, which is a really golf rich area. Uh, how did you get involved with the game and get started? You know, um, Victor was a, it's a, it's a, really, really nice suburb town. But when I grew up there, we were, we were kind of a farm town. And um, my dad was a golf sales rep first. So uh, I, he went to college at Ohio University, played golf, and then he um, had a short stint as, a, as an assistant professional. Um, and then he was a golf sales rep. So I kind of grew up with golf in the house. Okay. Um, but we weren't members at a club or anything. And uh, there was a public golf course, uh, you know, a couple miles from the house that when I started playing there in the late seventies was nine holes and it's now 63 holes. It was, oh, owned, wow. by an, it wow. was owned by an Italian family um, from East Rochester, Mr. Dianetti and Mr. Dianetti, um, you know, he hired us a little, little too young. Uh, we, we started working probably <laughs> before it was legal, but uh, my mom uh, and, you know, my friend's moms uh, and dads were, were happy that we were working and staying out of trouble. So I grew up playing a public golf course called Victor Hills um, saw it grow from nine to 18 before I started working there and then started working there. We helped build the third nine as, you know, as teenagers, you know, picking wow. rocks and driving trucks and, 
and doing stuff. So it was, it was a special place for us. I've got a couple of friends who are in the golf business uh, that we grew up playing there um, either at the same time or different times. And um, that was kind of my intro to playing golf. We rode our bikes there and I did everything from washing carts to cooking hot dogs and Italian sausages to watering at night uh, to drive the wow. tractor. Sam, we, we did, we did everything. So it was, it was a great intro to, to work a, and it was, you know, just always playing golf or working in golf. That's fantastic. So all sides of the golf, uh, golf operation. That's great. Um, and so, um, you went on to college. You, I, I, did you play in college and what I was did. that? I like? went to a small uh, Catholic university in Erie, Pennsylvania called Gannon university. And I played division two golf at Gannon, um, which is great. You know, I mean, PGM programs were just starting. Um, but I wanted to play, you know, and I wasn't, you know, quite good enough to, to play at a, at a super high division one level. I had an opportunity to, to be a walk-on, but I wanted to play. And right. so I played division two golf at Gannon. Um, and then right out, of, right out again. And uh, I got started as, as an assistant pro. So at wh- what point, you know, you're introduced to the game, you're playing in college. Did you kind of say, Hey, this is something I think I want to make a career out of. How did that thought process go? Yeah, it was probably even before I went to college that I knew I wanted to be a golf pro. Um, I worked, um, once I had a driver's license, I started working at a private club in Rochester called Locust Hill Country Club. And um, the head professional there, oddly enough, uh, or small world enough, my dad was his first assistant professional. So that was my tie into getting the job. And I ended up being his, his last assistant professional. Um, but I worked in the back room at Locust. And, and I, I realized, I, I think I knew before I went to college that that's what, I, that's what I wanted to do. It's what I was gearing myself to want to do. Fantastic. Um, and uh, you knew it was more so not just golf, but a club pro. I mean, did you ever give him any thought to try to play, you know, as a, as a career or um, I know how incredibly, you know, obviously competitive and tough it is, but I'm just curious. I mean, did you always know you wanted to go the club pro direction when you think about as opposed to the playing direction? Yeah, I think I was pretty realistic. I mean, I was an okay junior player. I mean, um, in, in, in our area, I, I was a relevant player, you know, in the, you know, right. our ma- in our match play, city match play and things like that. Um, but I wasn't the standout player. There were, you know, a couple of kids that could, you know, beat me pretty good. And, you know, even at college, I won, I won a couple tournaments and was a relevant division two college player for a decent program. Yeah. Um, but, you know, I, I was pretty realistic to the fact that I had no business going to try to, you know, <laughs> to eat, eat, eat off my earnings. So. Yeah. It's amazing. Um, you know, I was, um, I mean, I played in college, uh, and, um, I was, you know, I grew up in central Connecticut and West Hartford and, you know, played in junior tournaments and played in the state stuff, but I look around now, I'm sure you must feel this way even more. So being in Philadelphia at what the junior programs have become now and the American junior golf association and just the quality of the play and everything, it's just, it's amazing when I look around now yeah, what it's like. It's, it's outrageous. I mean, some of the scores, even on our local golf association of Philadelphia events that at the amateur level, you know, not the junior level, the scores that some of these college age kids are shooting in these tournaments is, is right. astounding on great classic golf courses. It's just, right. it's, yeah, it, how many good players there are, how deep it runs is, is pretty, you know, uh, for the, for the, for the, you know, the young guy, the young college guy that wants to make a run at it now, I think it's even harder than it was 25 years ago. Oh, exactly. That's exactly what sort of high feel. So, so you're off being a club pro. So I know, and um, you know, we know we are now around a make, um, but I'm curious about some of the stops along the way. Um, and if I remember right, I think one of them was Pine Valley. Um, but um, I'm just curious sort of uh, kind of how the, what was the road that ended up leading to around mink, which I think was 2008. So we've got a little bit of time. How did we end up from where you started to Aronomy? Yeah. So out of college, I worked at Locust Hill Country Club for my first right. three years, actually for two different professionals. And uh, both were gave me a good start, you know, kind of two different, you know, an old school pro who had been there for 28 years. And then, a, um, you know, a younger guy with his first head professional job. So I saw, you know, two different ways and learned a lot from both for sure. And I've stayed in my first boss has passed, but I've stayed in touch well with, uh, with my second. And then I worked at a club called Monroe golf club, which is another Donald Ross golf course. I say the second best course in town behind, behind the East course at Oak Hill. Um, wow. and worked for a, a great professional there named Jim Merva. Um, and Jim, um, 
you know, I didn't get to work for Craig Harmon at Oak Hill and everybody knows Craig, but Jim right, is, right. Jim's a fabulous golfer. We actually won, um, he was recognized as the national golf professional of the year by the PGA of America back in 2010, I believe. Wow. Um, and so it was, it was great. It was more exciting for us that worked for him than for Jim, because we knew how good he was. And it was just nice for, to get him some recognition outside of Western New York, everybody in Western New York knew him. So, so from Monroe, I worked for Jim for three years, did a couple of winter, three winners in Florida for another great professional named Steve Waugh down in Naples. Okay. Um, and then, and then from there I moved on to Pine Valley and it was a, it was a, it was a lucky thing. You know, I started applying for jobs, had pro jobs when I was in Monroe and, you know, unless you're from upstate New York, you don't know how great Monroe is or how great Jim was as, as a training ground. So getting right. a job outside the area, I actually applied for a job here in Philadelphia and this was before email. And I, I teased that I feel like I got the rejection letter faster than if it had been email. And <laughs> the thanks, but no thanks. And I said, you know what, I, I need to work in a bigger market and get right. a little more exposure. So I just started sending resumes to some of the best clubs. And I didn't even know some of the professionals at the time, you know, my, my world in Rochester, New York was pretty small. Um, and some, some of the pros that I knew, um, and I didn't apply to Pine Valley. I had applied at Marion and yeah. at the time Jim Muthing uh, called me back. He was one of the only pros that called me back. Nice. Okay. And, you know, if I have an opening, I'll, I'll call you. I've got an, an assistant that's interviewing for a head pro job. And that assistant didn't get the job. And when I, I felt like I called him every day to check. And <laughs> he said, he, he goes, the assistant, he goes, my assistant didn't get the job, but I passed your resume on to Pine Valley. And um our superintendent at Monroe golf club had been the superintendent at Pine Valley and left by his own choice to move back to Rochester. Oh, wow. And, and so Patrick, Patrick Gertner is his name. Patrick got me the job at Pine Valley, essentially. I mean, he, he, had, he was still friendly with Charlie Roddenbush, who's the GM director of golf. And, um, you know, Charlie, wa I walked in with a coat and tie. I'm 29 years old and all nervous <laughs> to be at Pine Valley. Take the jacket and tie off. It makes me nervous. You got the job. You got the job on Patrick's call. So, um, so it was great. I mean, and, um, Pine Valley was obviously awesome. Uh, it opened up a whole new, bigger world to me and, you know, some of the best people in golf that you get to meet, uh, let alone, you know, I played a lot of golf at Pine Valley and Charlie was obviously incredible to work for. And I worked there for a year. I would have loved to work there for another year. And um, an opportunity came open at a club called Applebrook Golf Club that was just okay. built. And one of our members at, at Pine Valley um, was one of the founding members um, at Applebrook. He was also a member here at Aronimic too. And uh, he took a, an interest in me and uh, we struck up a relationship and he hired me at Applebrook. And we they, I got hired in November of November of 2000, um, and then I started in March of 2001, which is right around the, my one-year time at Pine Valley, uh, finishing up, and um, we opened Applebrook in September, September 15th of 01, four days after 9-11. Oh, um, boy, what a time yeah. to open, yeah. yeah it was it was it was awkward. We were it kind of tempered the excitement for sure. But for sure. Um, so Applebrook was designed by Gil Hans. Oh, um, okay. He lived, he lived not two miles away. Right. He's from the area. That's right. Yeah. yeah. So his house, he still has a house there. He's all over the world, obviously, but um, he, you know, his house is two miles away. So it was, it was really neat to, to meet Gil at a younger age and watch his, you know, professional career just catapult into, you know, incredible success. So, um, so I worked at Applebrook for seven years, two years as the head professional, and then five years as the head professional slash general manager. Um, and at one point we shared almost a hundred members with Aronimic. It was kind of a sister course. Oh, wow. Um, okay. We could, 13 of our 15 founding members at, Aron at Applebrook were from Aronimic. So I knew a lot of, a lot of Aronimic people, both our members and people that played in member guests. And, uh, when the opportunity came open at Aronimic, it was a, it was a, fortunate and I say how lucky I've been at each stage in my career to hit each stage at the right time I've been very fortunate and it was you know kind of the next you know stage I felt in my career and not to have to move the family or you know even right. move our house and yeah. everything right. was, was really nice very cool boy so let's I mean only a year of Pine Valley but I, we got to talk for a minute or two about Pine Valley because it's such an amazing place I I had the opportunity to play there once about 20 years ago. And um, it was not 
everything I had heard about it, it didn't disappoint at all. It's it was just amazing from the turtle soup with the sherry and the decanters on the lunch table to yeah. the whole and 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 frankly, I thought. I think it was Fazio who designed that third nine with the way he duplicated the approach shots, you know, I mean, it was just unbelievable, but the whole thing, cause I've seen the pictures, you know, with hell's half acre and, you know, the fifth hole, the world's hardest bar three and all, all the other stuff. And it, it's an amazing thing. And it's such a national club, right? So I know you're only there a year, but you must've had the chance to meet some pretty neat people, I would think. Yeah, it was, uh, you know, I was, I was, you know, 29 year old guy and I, I, I appreciate it more now than I did then. And I appreciated it then, um, the opportunity that it was, I mean, my, like I said, my golf world was pretty small. Um, right. you know, Rochester, New York's a small town and I had gone to Naples and, but that, that was pretty much it. I hadn't done a lot of traveling for, you know, to play some of the great golf courses in the East coast. And, you know, I, I appreciate it even more now. And I did appreciate it then, but you know, the people that I got to meet, you know, even the members and the guests, you know, having, somebody like, you know, Mr. Gordon Brewer, who was the president right. of the club at the time, right. getting to know Mr. Brewer, just, you know, it was incredible. And uh, like I said, I appreciate it, you know, whatever it is, 22 years later now, how much more, I, you know, how lucky I was and how fortunate the opportunity was. You know, Jim Muthing, he left Marion uh, as the professional in the fall of 2000 when I worked at Pine Valley. He got out of the business. Um, oh, wow. Okay. And I, I, I've only gotten to meet him once. I'm sitting, you know, I'm the head professional at Aeronomic today because Jim Muthing passed my, my resume on to, to uh, Charlie at Pine Valley. So, right. um, yeah, it, it was really lucky and it was, it was awesome. You know, I, when I got there, my, uh, my wife and I uh, didn't have any children yet. I said, I said, honey, I, I'm going to play a lot of golf. I don't know how long I'm going to work here, but <laughs> however long it is, if I don't play a lot, I'll regret not playing a lot. So I played a lot of golf at Pine Valley, which was, which was awesome. Oh yeah. My God. It's such a, so I, I, it literally is 20. I, I may have played when you were there. It was fall of 2000. Um, and yeah. I had done some, I did a lot of work in my, um, in my, as a lawyer for Comcast. Um, okay. and so, and Brian Roberts, of course, belonged there, but, um, and, um, uh, you know, I think it was Bill Heinemann's or something in the Heinemann family. We got, somebody got us on and I played with the tax director at, at, um, at Comcast was one of these guys that literally would make, you know, his goal was to play all the top hundred courses. And he had actually played Pine Valley a few times. And, um, uh, but he got us on there and, and yeah, it's an amazing, an amazing experience. I will, even 22 years later, I remember, you know, the 13th hole, that sweeping par four. I mean, every hole, I think I can remember even you. from That's once awesome. 22 years. I mean, it's just, it's an amazing place. So I'm sure that was cool. Let's talk about, let's talk about Gil Hans for a second, but this is cool. I, and I know he did the redesign, you know, at, at Aronimink, but um, I hadn't realized, and I knew he was from the Philadelphia area. I didn't know that you had run into him earlier. I mean, yeah, talk about someone whose career has exploded. Um, and he is really, um, done so many wonderful restorations, um, including um, your place where you are now. Um, and uh, so I, so you knew him a little bit, it sounds like before he got engaged then to do the redo at Aronimink, it sounds like. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, so I fir first met Gil in the fall of uh, 2000 when I was interviewing at, at Applebrook and that was the first time I met him. And um, you know, and I, he was, you know, he had done a few golf courses um, of his own at that point, and he had, right. had done some restoration work. Uh, but he was, you know, in, not in the infancy, but he was in the developmental stage of his career for sure. And you know, in, in comparison to to where he is now, um, but you know, he, you know, he had done one other golf course, uh, complete design in our area called Innisgrown. Uh, so we were the second one in our area. Applebrook was the second one in, in our area here that he's done. He's since done one more in our area, complete design of his own. Uh, but he's done, you know, so much restoration work in our area and continues to do. Um, so, yeah, I mean, just watching what he's done and, you know, I think shortly after that he did Boston golf club, which really got him some really nice right. recognition and then yeah, the Olympic yeah. course and, you know, and countless, he's done, you know, rustic cannon out Canyon out in yeah. California, which right, is where so we are. Received. Right. Yeah. So, I mean, he's just done, he's done. So well, and, 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 you know, and even closer to where I am, you know, LA country club, which is going to oh, have yeah. the open next year, uh, which was a wonderful, the North course is 
always been a wonderful course, but boy, he did a great job on that. Um, I know he's got Yale that he's going to be doing, which, you know, growing up in Connecticut, I, and I think he would tell you that Yale is kind of almost the most exciting project for him because that course is so great, but has been so neglected over the years. And I think, you know, you could not have a better person to do that than Gil Hans. And I'm, I'm just very, ex- that's, I, I, you probably, I don't even may have probably played Yale. I mean, you know, the scale of Yale is unbelievable and the bones are all there and I'm very excited to see what he's oh, going to so do. Excited. Yeah. I played it once <laughs> in college. Our ECAC championship was there. Um, we had some snow flurries, I remember, in the fall. Um, but I, 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 again, I didn't appreciate architecture nearly as much as I do now, uh, not even close. Um, so I, I'm, I'm excited. To, I, I want to get up there this summer to play it before he starts the work because then I can appreciate much more. Right, the changes. But, yeah, you think about you know, Brookline this year. Right. Um, he's been the consulting architect for a while. Wingfoot. Yeah, he has. Uh, Wingfoot. Uh, next year, um, at LA Country Club. I mean, number of um, U.S. Open golf courses, and you know, PGA Championship this year at Southern Hills. Right. Um, you know that he did a, a, a huge restoration project there. So I mean, um, yeah, I mean a lot of you know, Oakland Hills just announced a whole litany of of championships that they're going to be playing between now and and into the 2050s with. U.S. Open, Women's Open, U.S. Amateur, Junior Amateur, Boys and Girls, all, you know, uh, I think his work there is, is a big part of that. So it, it's been, I mean, it's just incredible. Um, you know, I got to play a hoopie this this past fall. Um, oh, okay. Just a, a really neat, neat place. And he gives a lot of credit to the owner there, too. But, I mean, the golf course is just a, just a blast. So much fun to play. So, yeah, I'm pr- proud to say I'm, I, I know him. He's a friend. Uh, just that's it's awesome. So much fun to watch his career. Oh, for sure. So, talk to me a little bit about what it was like with his work at Aronomy. So, a Donald Ross gem. Um, I've seen the I've seen the pictures of the plaque when Donald Ross came back and said I did even better than I. I'm I'm mangling this a little bit, but I mm-hmm. did it even better than I thought it was. And and. Um, uh, but it, it looks, I've seen the before and after photos, never played around me, but I've seen the before and after photos, a lot of changes, a lot more bunkers. Although I gather some of it is taking bigger bunkers and splitting them into smaller ones. But, um, uh, talk to me about kind of what the restoration has been like and, and, and what the process was like. I'm sure he must've had to unearth a lot of old photos and he's very mm-hmm. meticulous. I mean, you obviously know him a lot better than I do, but knowing his work, he's very meticulous. So what was that whole process like? Yeah, so the club um, started the process in 1996 of, of wanting to restore the Donald Ross roots. Um, it was, it was, as I understand, I never saw it then. It was very overgrown with pine trees and and and, and hardwoods too. And they um, enlisted the help of Ron Pritchard um, as as their design consultant. And Ron put together a, a very strong, well written master plan that was really the guidance for a good long time for Aronimic. And Gil gives a lot of credit to 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 Ron uh, for getting the club going in, in getting the club, you know, the golf course back to its Donald Ross roots. And so with a lot of that work was um, getting the bunkers back in their original locations. Uh, RTJ had done some work here in the fifties, um, but getting the, go- the, the bunkers back into what, how the golf course was drawn. Um, tree removal was a big part of it. Uh, yeah. All the pine trees had almost all of the pine trees had been taken out. Um, but then something that kind of happened from when Ron finished the work in 2001 ish, um, until Gil did the work is a lot of our, a lot of our hardwoods are red oaks and in our area, there's a, there's a disease killing all the red oaks. So Mm. the scale of the golf course started to get back much more to what it was when it was built and opened in 1928, there were big corridors open up between holes. So we had these smaller bunkers that were in these big corridors Mm -hmm. and, and, you know, we have, you know, found a lot of uh, the original aerials um, in in an archive museum in, in Delaware in Wilmington that showed what the bunkers were when they were built. And um, Ross had drawn one thing and what was built was the clusters. So where there was one bunker, there ended up being three to five, let's say. I see. Okay. Um, and it much bigger in scale. And so the, the work that Gil proposed was, listen, he goes, this was, you know, and we actually have, there's a eight millimeter film that you can find on YouTube of Donald Ross on site 
You can see oh, the wow. shovels wow. in the distance. You can, see the, you can see the clubhouse in the distance that was being wow. built at the same time. Uh, so, you know, he felt strongly that, you know, what was built was what, you know, was what he wanted. And um, so Gil said, let's focus on this. And the design style of the bunkers was a little bit different too. Ron's were more of the traditional Donald Ross grass face, um, you know, kind of rolled down to the, to the bottom of the bunker. And the pictures that we had showed much more flash sand. Um, so right. you could see a lot more of the features from the distance. Right. And Gil right. had a line that I, I still remember. He said, let's focus on the particular instead of the ordinary. He goes, you know, you had, um, the, this was a, a later Ross course for the Northeast, 1928 yeah. at Oakland. Yeah. Um, he said, you know, he didn't build every golf course the same. So let's not have every bunker set of bunkers look like, you know, the bunkers that are at, you know, earlier courses he had done where maybe he had done more grass face like at Monroe Golf Club. Right. So, um, so Gil kind of took us through that process, a lot of green reclamation, getting the corners of the greens back and a lot more hole locations, uh, some of the width of the fairways too, to go along with the scale of those bunkers. So, um, you know, it was, it was fun to go through the process with him and, you know, I'm always, I feel like I, I'd love to follow him from start to finish of every project. I feel like I learned so much. Yeah. So when was the work finished then? It must've taken a while. When did he ended up uh, re reopening? Yeah, we kind of did it over two winters because we didn't rebuild the greens. We didn't have to close. So we did the bunker, the majority okay. of the bunker work from uh, the fall of um, fall of 15 through the spring of 16. Um, better Billy Bunker and all the bunkers, uh, which has been a great investment. And then the following year, we uh, finished up some work and did and did the tees too. We went back to these big freeform tees that had been built that we had the good aerials for that, you know, gave us a little more options for angles and variety of, of distances and things like that. So we did it over two winters. So the spring of 18, it finished, we finished the tees. We had to get the other work done because we had the BMW coming in. That's what I, that's actually why I asked you, because I know you had the 2000, I'm just trying to think of the various tournaments um you know it more i mean obviously we can go back in time we had the 62 pga but but in terms of more recently i know there was a couple of the at&t nationals that were probably mm -hmm. around 210 211 but the bmw was two, i think 2018 so you had the work done before the bmw yeah the big part of the work especially the green reclamation was important to get done further in advance than the, the t work was easier and uh, more sod related than uh than growing uh growing in anything and so um yeah, we did it, did it over those two winters. Cool. Um, so um, speaking of tournaments, I mean, you know, it's rich history there. And, you, you, you know, historically, you've had a bunch of, you know, notable tournaments. But um, now you've got um, the, uh, you had the KPMG women's PGA, if I'm remembering, I think in 2020. Mm -hmm. um, and then you've got the P, the men's PGA coming up. Um, what's it like for you as a head pro when you have the BMW or the KPMG? I mean, what's, what role do you play? What's it like? What's that experience like for you? Yes. Yeah, uh, for the AT&Ts, um, we ran the merchandise tent, so we were, we were busy. Oh, um, wow. I'm sure. Your first, Tiger played the first year. And, yeah. You know, right. Um, so we ran the merchandise tent, which was an awesome, an awesome experience. Um, you know, we worked our tails off, but it was something with, you know, I had never been a part of before and the planning processes. And I had some, some good help from outside the club, you know, friends that, that have done it before and, and things. So uh, that was a great experience. So that was really the bulk of the experience in 10 and 11. Um, yeah. I try, I realized after 2010 that, the staff didn't get to experience enough of the tournament. So I made sure in 2011 that they, they got to get out of the tent and enjoy, yeah, yeah. and enjoy being, you know, seeing the, the best players in the world, you know, play the golf course that they work at. Um, 2018 was a little bit different. You know, the, uh, the Western golf association runs, um, the BMW and they do a fabulous job. They're incredible right. at it. Uh, they're great operators and tournament administrators. So we didn't have nearly the responsibility. So, it was, you know, a little more of an ambassador role and, you know, operations for driving range and pro-am caddies and things like that. But it wasn't nearly the responsibility level uh, that we had for the AT&Ts. Um, and then in 2020, you know, we got, you know, the club got shortchanged. I don't say I, I did. I, um, the club got shortchanged. We didn't have spectators for the, uh, the 2020. Oh, because of COVID. That's right. Yeah. yeah. Tournament was supposed to be in June. We played it in, um, in early October. Uh, so yeah. we had a little bit smaller field, but it was still obviously a great field. But 
uh, we didn't have any spectators. So the yeah, club that's really too didn't bad. get to do it. Yeah. It, was, it was unfortunate because the, yeah. the women were so appreciative to be here. They are, they were just fabulous to have here. Um, so I got to do, you know, something pretty interesting. I got to serve as a rules official, um, because wow. that's one of our tournaments. I got to serve yeah. as a rules official on, on, on my home golf course. So, um, it was great. Um, you know, it was, you know, not having spectators, we made the, the, the committee a little bit smaller. So we didn't have our, our full complement uh, of rules officials because we just didn't need as many. So right. we didn't do some of the roles that we normally do, like a, being a, a walking official in some of the last groups. Right. Um, but it was still, you know, it, it was still a great experience to, to do that at, at home. Um, so that was unique. I, I bet. So let's start. See, we touched on a couple of things there, a couple of your many different um, aspects of your career. Merchandising. Um, I mentioned that with the AT&T. So I know PJ Private Merchandiser of the Year, National Award in 2011. Um, talk to me a little bit about how you've been so successful as a merchandiser. I did. I, I saw that YouTube video uh, that the PGA put out when you won the award and lovely, wonderful comments from a lot of your members and stuff. Um, you obviously do a great job in terms of keeping the shop uh, you know, uh, stocking stuff that your members like and everything, but talk to me a little bit about kind of how you've been able to be su so successful as a merchandiser. Well, first of all, I'm fortunate to work at a, at a great club, you know, and I'm, you know, fortunate to work at a place where they like to bring friends and, you know, and have a good experience hopefully. And, and, you know, and buy something in the shop to remember that great experience. I right. Mean, I, I know I do the same, you know, with yeah. play someplace <laughs> that I had a great experience. I, you know, I have to buy something that's going to, you know, remember that, remember that <laughs> right. day. Right. Um, you know, but, uh, so that, that's the first thing I've, I've got a great team. Uh, I've had great assistance. I had an incredible, uh, golf shop merchandiser for, she finished last year. She worked with me for 13 years. So, Oh, wow. Um, yeah. She would, you know, like having a, you know, like losing your right arm a little bit. Yeah. Um, yeah. I'm sure. After 13 years together. But so I had an incredible team. Um, and a membership that has, you know, really, really supported, supported the shop, you know, also having the unique opportunity of, of hosting the AT&T and running the merchandise tent that was that was part of the recognition too. So not everybody gets to do that. So I was fortunate to be given that opportunity, which ultimately helped, you know, uh, get us some recognition for the for the job that we did. Um, you know, I don't think any golf pro gets into the business to say, I want to be the the best merchandiser. It's, it's, awesome. it's awesome to get the, the recognition and it's a big part of what we do. And I, yeah. I look at it from a standpoint of if the shop's doing well, I think people are really happy with, you know, the golf course, the, the golf experience, uh, the service levels that they're getting, that they want to buy something to remember. And it also right. means that our, our professional staff is engaged and that we're doing club fittings and that we're teaching and we're, we're growing, you know, getting newer people, you know, getting people into the game that they need to buy equipment and want to buy shoes and new bags and, and things like that. So I look at it as a result of us doing a good job more so than us doing a good job to sell. Right. That makes sense. And the fitting, you know, and I, it's, it's interesting. I, I go down to, uh, i Ever since Ben Hogan, you know, company, which I used to adore those irons when I was a kid, you know, has gone up, kind of become a Titleist guy. And I, I go down to the Titleist Performance Institute because it's not far away in Oceanside here. Mm -hmm. And I'm just more and, 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 and our club at Brentwood does fittings, too. And, and the, the technology that and keeping abreast of all of the stuff to do fittings, particularly at a private club where you're talking about across different brands and stuff like that. Um, that's got to be a lot of work for people to keep on top of that and, and the equipment, you know, I don't know if you, if you've got, a, you know, launch monitors or whatever, or how you do the fitting, but, um, that's like a whole science in itself these days, right? Oh yeah. I mean, you know, we're, you know, we, we have two track man, you know, units yeah. and, you know, um, making sure everybody's on the same page that we're all speaking the same languages. Right. Um, um, everybody's fitting system is a little bit different and the shaft right. offerings are a little bit different. Right. So staying exactly. up on that each year is, is, is part of the deal, but, uh, luckily we all do enough fittings that I think that that's part of it, that, you know, doing, you know, being active and fitting just gets us more, more knowledgeable in doing it too. So, um, so luckily we're, we're, we're a pretty active club as far as fitting and that, you know, a, it challenges to, to stay up to date, but right. it keeps us up to date just by, by doing more fittings too. Right. By people that the demand for it. Um, so that's the merchandising stuff. You touched on the rules official stuff and you've, you know, besides that one term, it sounds like 
you've done a bunch of work on rules officiating over the years. So how did that become part of your portfolio and your interest? And what's what's that been like? And I know, you know, we've had this, you know, a big change in the rules a few years ago. Uh, one of um, uh, and, and my um, one of my partners, uh, Mark Newell, was former president of the USGA. I know he oversaw a lot of the rules stuff, but um, so it's always a work in progress. But I'm I'm very interested to see how you how you got in that because that's that's a whole job in itself, keeping abreast of all the rules stuff. So it's interesting to me that that's been a big part of what you've done. Yeah, it wasn't. Again, it's not something that you know. As an, an assistant pro, I said, you know, I want to be the best. You know, best <laughs> right. I can be at rules. Um, it's it's not something I think we. We get, you know, we think about playing and teaching, you know, kind of first. Um, but I had gone to a, a few USGA, USGA PGA of America rules workshops uh, through the years. You know, we're not that far from Far Hills. So right in New Jersey, that's I'll, right. I'll try, yeah. I would try to take it up at, at headquarters, at USGA headquarters. And the first time I did it, I took the test and I'm going to, you know, I think I, I know enough about rules. I'm a golf pro and I use them fairly often. I got, I think, a 52 on the test. <laughs> and I said to myself, I said, well, that's ridiculous. I said, I, I use these every day. You know, we have, you know, it, you know, not a week goes by where we're not getting three or four or five questions on rules, sure. you know, be it either in a tournament, something that's really important or somebody just having a question. Sure. So I said, I, I need to be better. So I went back to a couple more rules workshops and I did much better on the test. And to the point that I scored a score that would be good enough to be considered um, to be on the rules committee for the PG of America. And one of, we actually, in our section currently, there's four of us um, on the PGA of America Rules Committee, which might wow. be the most of any That's a lot. Yeah, that's got to be. I bet not it is. That, there's not that many of us. No, I know. I don't yeah. know that there's 40 PGA of America Rules uh, Rules Committee members. I'm not sure the, the total number offhand, but it's probably just under 40. Um, and we have four. And one of them is Tom Carpus. And Tom now works for the PGA Tour Champions as a, as a rules official. Uh, but he was a head professional at a club called Kennett Square uh, Golf and Country Club, which is, you know, not, it's, you know, 30 minutes from Aronimic. Um, and he said, he goes, he goes, I think it'd be great if you got involved in the rules committee. So he helped me get involved with the rules committee and help, you know, help, he helped to get me on the committee. And he was the chair uh, shortly thereafter, the PGA of America Rules Committee. Okay. Um, so he, he got me involved. I, I remember I went up to the PGA at Oak Hill in 2013 and just kind of observed and they had me you know, spend time with each uh, in three or four different areas that they were doing. Somebody that was starting, somebody that was out on the course, somebody that was rovering. Um, so I, I spent some time uh, with the committee and, and shortly thereafter, I think in the fall of that year, um, I was asked to be on the committee. So um, it's been great. I have, you know, I've been on the committee, for this will, I guess, be my ninth year. Um, and it's been an incredible experience. I mean, first and foremost, I've met some awesome golf professionals that I probably wouldn't have gotten to know, like David Price from, from Dallas, Texas, or Mark yeah. Wilson from Michigan, you know, just yeah. Brad Gregory, just some incredible professionals that I never would have met leaving several out, but the people that I, I really think a lot of that I, I probably never would have crossed paths with, with, without this, but, and then the experiences, you know, the selfish experiences of you know, being involved with a, you know, a PGA champion three PGA championships, two KPMGs. And last year I, I got to, you know, work at the Ryder cup. So, um, Oh, wow. Wow. Yeah, so, so you were, <laughs> um, so it's it just, you know, incredible experiences. And like I said, the, the friends that I've made too have, have, been, have been great too. So working these tournaments, are you, are you going with groups or are you just roving and they need an, an issue and they, they radio you to come over or how, what's the experience like? So for our PGA championships, generally you work, um, you work two holes, you know, let's say on, um, at Beth page, I worked the third hole or second hole and the 17th hole. So two days on two, on two, two days on 17, but on Sunday, I was a walk on Saturday and Sunday, the last five groups, I believe have a, have a, a, a walking, a, a, a rules walking official, walking right? Group. So yeah. I walked with, uh, Adam Scott and, um, Patrick Cantley on Sunday oh, wow. at, at Beth Page. So um, that was the first time I had walked and you, you got to get a little bit further on before you're going to be uh, asked to walk with a group. But that was the first time I had walked with a group with the PGA. Um, previous to that, I had just, you do, you do your holes, spend time. Right. And then the, the Ryder Cup, you're just with a group. I only got to do one match as a rookie last year, which was awesome. I mean, I was nervous enough as it was. And so I had a, I had a great match on Saturday morning um, and the foursomes with, um, 
Jordan Spieth, uh, Justin Thomas, uh, Bern Wiesberger, and um, I'm drawing a blank. Um, European player, Victor Hovland. Um, yeah. So I had I had a, a great match that went to the 18th hole and had enough rulings to to be involved, but not so much that. Uh, I'm trying to think. That was was that I can't remember which round it was that Jordan had that shot where he almost fell into Lake Michigan um, on 17. I don't know if it was yeah, that. It wasn't, it wasn't that one. It wasn't, it that, wasn't that one. That okay. One. No, no. <laughs> no, it, it made an well, awesome eagle on 16. That was the excitement. Oh uh, wow. Okay. Yeah. Boy, that must be so cool doing that. So let me just ask you a little bit. It, it, it's got to be. Um, a little bit of a challenging situation if someone gets in a situation where, you know, they think they should get relief and maybe you have a different view or something like that. I mean, I've, I've, you know, of course, you know, the cameras always follow Bryson on this stuff, but I mean, I've seen, you know, situations over the years where that can be a little tricky. Um, um, that's gotta be a, uh, a little tense situation. I'm sure you handle it beautifully, but I mean, that's gotta be a little tense situation when those come up and a player thinks they should get relief and you're trying to make a judgment there. That's gotta be a little tricky. Yeah. I, I haven't had any that have been, you know, that have got, you know, um, last year at the Ryder cup, you know, Brooks Kepka um, had one uh, in a match, and I had mentioned David Price, who's a, a past chair of our committee, and yeah, um, just a, a fabulous golf professional and and, and a rules official. Um, and he handled it is you know to me that's where I learned how he handled yeah. that situation, how calm he remained, and yeah, and, you know took in all the information and you know gave his opinion and was you know was strong. And they called for a second opinion and second opinion supported his opinion, but just watching how David handled that situation or, you know, Brad Gregory, I've seen him, you know, and, and how he handles some of these situations or Mark Wilson, it's just, that that's where I learn. Um, and hopefully if I get a situation that's as difficult as those, I can, hopefully I can be half as, as smooth as they are. No, I, I, I'm sure you will, but, you know, and I appreciate the, the learning experience. That's, that's interesting. So, so, merchandising the rule stuff and then you've also been really active i know in the section stuff so i know you were elected president a couple of years ago pj section so what are those duties like and how is it balancing that with all of the other stuff which is already sounds like a pretty full plate you have at being at the club and these other these other aspects the rules and stuff what's what's your section duties like yeah, um, so we've got uh, a decent sized board. You know, you start out as what we call district directors and they're, they're board members. And then we have our executive committee, which is our president, vice president, um, secretary, director of section affairs, and our tournament director, uh, tournament chairman. Um, so those are our five, you know, PGA members that are, that are on the, but, you know, I'm leaving out the probably the most important part, and that's our executive director of our section. Uh, yeah. We've got one of the best executive directors in the country, and his name's Jeff Surratt. And I, I always say, and I, you know, I, I tell anybody, I wouldn't have, I probably wouldn't have pursued the role of being an, uh, you know, an officer of the section if, if we didn't have somebody like Jeff. And we're really fortunate because he's, I always feel like we're a sounding board for him. If he needs something, I mean, he's, he's truly running um, the section on a day-to-day -day basis, just so, right. you know, uh, I hope our golf chairman would feel, you know, or the president of the club would feel about, you know, his executive team here at the club with either be it the general manager, the golf professional, right. the superintendent, right. that hopefully we are, um, they feel like that they're a support system for us operating on a daily basis. Um, you know, we, hopefully we have some things that we want to achieve, you know, as a, as a team uh, for the board with, with our executive director, and we're working toward the same things. Um but, you know, I, it's, it, it was an absolute pleasure to serve. I still have uh, one and a half more years on the board as, as, the, as the past president, honorary president. Um, so I'll, I'll miss it when it's gone. I mean, I, I think I've been on the board. Uh, what was that? Eight, 10, almost 14 years. Wow, so, I mean, that's a lot. The, the better part of my time here in the Philadelphia section. So um, it'll, it'll be a void when it's over. I'll, I'll miss it for sure. Um, same thing, the friends that I've made and, you know, working, you know, with Jeff Surratt, our ED, um, I'll, I'll miss it, but you know, I'm sure I'll fill it with something else too. I have no doubt. Um, do you get a chance to play much with all of all this other stuff going on? I see, I'm looking at the Scotty Cameron bag back there with, uh, you know, and all the, the implements in there, the, yeah. you, do you get a chance to play much? 
Yeah, I wouldn't do it if I couldn't play golf, Larry. I mean, I, I you know, uh, my old boss, Jim Merva, that, that I worked for, he always used to say, if you're not playing, you're, man- you're not managing your time right and you're not doing your job right. So, okay. um, yeah, I play. I mean, I, I you know, I'm, uh, I play in section events. I'm, um, I'm not a world beater, but I, you know, I can, you know, I say I cash last checks. Um, you know, if I cash a check, it's usually deep into the pool, but I play and I play with members. Um, I've got a, a friend who's a, a pro out in California and he says every year his goal is to play a hundred rounds. So I've adopted that. Wow. Great. Um, awesome. But I, I haven't hit a hundred, uh, but you know, I, you know, a couple years ago before COVID I was in, I was in the eighties for, for the year and that was for the whole year, but yeah, I, I, I wouldn't do it if I couldn't play. I mean, that's, yeah. that's what got us all into this. And it's totally, um, I, I do something else that would allow me to play golf if, if I, if I wasn't playing golf. And then the club is great about it too. They're very supportive of us both playing in tournaments. They want to play with, uh, with the, with the staff. So our whole staff plays and I'm lucky to have a, a, a talented staff and a big staff that we can all get out there and play with the members. That's excellent. So I'm trying to remember, I, I, I don't know if I have this right. Is Jay Siegel still a, a member at uh, Aronimic, yeah, right? Absolutely. So, I mean, he growing up, I mean, he's obviously older than I am, but he was just the God of us of amateur golf. Um, and, um, and then I, I was so impressed. I remember when he turned, became a senior, you know, he, he turned pro, um, and did super well on the senior tour, won yeah, a number of tournaments times. there. So, um, uh, that's that I'm sure you must've played a bunch with him over the years. Um, but, um, pretty cool to have a two-time us amateur champion as a member of your club. Yeah, it's, <laughs> it's, um, again, I, I, um, uh, when I started, I didn't, I don't know if I would know to appreciate it as much as I do now having, you know, Jay as, as a resource for myself, um, right. you know, somebody for, for my team to pick his brain about playing or just the golf industry in general. But, um, yeah, it, it's, it's pretty neat. And he's, you know, he's been a big part of the club for a long time. And, you know, I say, you know, I'm, I'm biased. I know, and I'm sure people could make, you know, great cases for others, but I say third greatest amateur ever. Yeah. So we got, we got to have Bob Jones at the top. Um, and, um, who you, so who are you putting number two? I'm curious. Tiger. Tiger. Okay. Six, fair enough. Six straight USGA. USGA yeah. It's hard USGA. to be that. Um, yeah. you know, it's funny. I had a, um, can't disagree with that. Um, and, um, you know, it's funny. We, you mentioned the country club in Brookline. Um, I actually talked to, uh, Brendan Walsh, um, you know, a couple of weeks ago and, Brookline was actually our home course when in for my college team. And um, he was reminding me, and I had sort of read the book about Francis Lee Metz, you know, entire career, because everyone thinks of the 13 right. U.S. Open, of course, and probably the single most important event, if you pick one event in U.S. Right. Uh, golf history. But I had not realized, you know, and I knew he won the two U.S. amateurs, you know, almost 20 years apart. I hadn't realized what his record was. And it's funny because he ran into Bob Jones, you know, a couple of times in the 20s, you know, because you right. look at 1914, 1933, you say, gee, that's a big gap. What was in between? Well, Bobby Jones. Um, right. And yeah, uh, yeah uh, so you have a strong argument. But I will tell you, Tiger. Um, yeah, I, I and I still remember, I'm sure you do, you know, those six straight, you know, three of the juniors, three. Regular ones and um, Buddy Marucci is was one of his finalist victims. He's a Philadelphia, isn't he? A Philadelphia he is, yeah, guy? yeah. I mean, a yeah. Marion Pine Valley member. Uh, he right. was actually a member at Applebrook uh, too when I was okay. So yeah, so, so and and you know and Steve Scott and that putt you know on on the thirty fifth yeah. hole and you know it's just Tiger was unbelievable. Um, and, anyway, you, you know, just rattled that off. I mean, I, I remember all three finals matches. How many how many U.S. Amateur matches can you remember shots? You might remember who won. And maybe who finished second, um, but I mean, how many do you remember? Oh, I, I, yeah, a hundred percent. I can tell you, as much as I'm into golf, I don't know. I'm going to sort of think about this as I'm saying it, but I don't know that I could tell you any shots from a U.S. amateur um, that I can remember off the top of my head. I mean, I. You know, I love Band and Dune, so I followed that one pretty right. closely, and 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 I watched that one pretty closely, and and you know, and that that shot that uh, Tyler hit on that, I still can't believe he hit a four iron that far, but uh, you know, to carry it onto the last hole on that par five, but, right. but yeah, but the ones that I really remember, you're right, it's those Tiger ones, it's the you know, that controlled knockdown eight or nine iron he hit to seal it against Buddy Marucci. 
the comeback against Steve Scott um, and, you know, that putt. Um, it's funny because Brady Riggs, who's a, a, you know, a top hundred teacher that I, I take from that um, we're good friends. We were just talking about this the other day that that putt against Steve Scott, because Steve Scott was up pretty significantly after the first 18 in the finals. And um, uh, boy, that comeback. And I mean, that must've been a 40 foot putt on the 17th would have been the 35th right. hole. And that fist pump, that iconic, you know, picture of Tiger and just, it, it's, yeah, it's unbelievable. Yeah, and I remember even against on, Trip, on yeah, 17 yeah. at, yeah, exactly. Uh, right. At Sawgrass uh, playing Trip Keeney. Totally. Trip Keeney. Right. That's right. From the fringe at, yeah. uh, on the Island green. Yeah. I remember that and he had Tiger was wearing the hat, the big hat um, yeah. on that one. Cause of the Florida sun. Yeah. I, you're right. I can't, I mean, we're sitting here talking just off the top of my head. And what is this, you know, how many years ago we're talking, you know, 95, six, you know, four, five, six. And I can remember all these um, yeah. and all these years later. So you're hundred percent right. I mean, yeah. it's just, and here we are right in the middle of tiger mania as he's, you know, looks like he's going to be, you know, teeing it up at Augusta who would have thought after that, right. you know, accident a year ago, it's just, it's just unbelievable. So yeah. um, that, that Jason, I mean, uh, two U S amateurs, three mid amateurs, a British amateur, nine time Walker cupper. Yes. I mean, I know it, it was a different era than, than Francis. Wiedemann. But still, but, but still. I mean, it's just, I mean, it's, it's, I mean, and more people turn professional, but I mean, you know, not to the dumb, but I mean, that's just, it's a, it's a modern wreck. It's a modern, you know, you know, uh, I guess um, Nathan Smith has maybe come the closest with his mid, mid amateur successes. Um, right. But, you know, for those, I mean, Jim, those I think Jay won the U.S. in the mid-amateur the same year, if I'm remembering. In, right, 83, I think. in 83, he won both. Yeah. It's incredible. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's yeah. just, you know, well, and incredible to see somebody, you know, and Jay was what that was in the early 80s. So I'm trying to do the math. He must have been in his late 30s, maybe around yeah. 40 when he won. And, you know. I mean, the only guy today, and he's playing at Augusta, is Stewie Hogestad, who's from our neck of the woods. Right. Um, is and, and not that his record is comparable, but he's the only guy I can think of who is older um, and 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 keeps up with these younger U.S. you know the, the amateurs because he you know the U.S. I mean that's kind of why they started the mid amateur, right? The U.S. amateur right. is such a college golf you know thing, and to have someone like Jay do it and do it in two years in a row, it's just. He's remarkable. That's yeah. a, that's a record that um, uh, when you look at this whole body of work, the senior tour, I mean, all the Pennsylvania opens, you know, yeah. all the different, which is not a small tournament and, you know, and all of the amateurs just, just amazing. Um, so let me, let me wrap up with one thing. I, I got to ask you, you've got to be super excited. I know it's a few years away, but um, how cool is it for the 250th anniversary of our country to be doing a major tournament right at Philadelphia at, at your place in 2026 for the PGA. That's got to be really exciting to look forward to. Yeah, it's, it's really cool. And at first we were talking about a different year and I felt like, you know, you know, it would be awesome to have it in the 250th anniversary of the country to have it in Philadelphia. So uh, it's going to be a great year. I think there's some other things that are going to be going on in Philadelphia sports wise, and even golf wise, the U S amateurs, you know, at Marion that year. Oh, is it? I didn't realize uh, yeah. that. So, okay. you know, a couple months, three months after we have the PGA, they're going to have the U.S. Amateur. So it's it's going to be an exciting year in Philadelphia for sure. And we're, we're really excited and we're, we're starting our planning processes and, and getting going for this. It'll be a really great event um, for sure. Jeff, I want to thank you for being so generous with your time and spending uh, today talking about this has been great. Um, I've really enjoyed it. And, um, one of these days I'll, I have all these buddies from Comcast keep telling me I have to come out there to, you know, and play some, and I know the history, you know, Marion Aronami, the cricket club, you know, you've got Philadelphia has such a rich golf history. So great, maybe great one day golf. I'll yeah, make so it out let, there. let us know when you get here. Come see, <laughs> come see the work you'll did. Appreciate it. Thanks so much. Yeah.